133 million Americans live with a chronic disease. That's nearly half of us. By next year, 81 million will have multiple conditions. If you're suffering or love someone who is suffering or you want to keep yourself and your loved ones from suffering, I think you're going to find a lot of value in this conversation. I'm Linda Sievertson, and today on the Beautiful Writers Podcast, I've got two women on who are intimately connected to this topic of healing. Kelly Noonan-Gores is the director, writer, and star of the global phenomenon, The Heal Documentary, out in book form this month. She's joined by Anita Morjani, whose global bestseller, Dying to Be Me, made famous an out-of-this-world case of spontaneous healing. Anita's story of being riddled with cancerous tumors and having a near-death experience in the hospital only to walk out cancer-free is featured in Kelly's film, Heal, and in the book. I feel so blessed to have them on together because to me, their stories, especially as they relate to how their books came to be, which you'll hear, are a beautiful example of how creative goals can and do have a bigger life than our scared and small thinking can ever envision. But, and I think this is key, we have to be ready, energetically, emotionally, mentally, and physically, for our dreams to become real. Otherwise, we slow them down or push them away as each of these ladies did on their journey. Stay tuned if you're in need of a readiness reboot. I am so grateful to Cal, who is a dear girlfriend of mine, for introducing me to Anita. Heal is not unlike this show in that Kelly gathers together the best and brightest minds, in this case of leading scientists and spiritual teachers to let the rest of us know that our thoughts, beliefs, and emotions have a huge impact on our health and our ability to heal. Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson, Dr. Michael Beckwith, Dr. Bruce Lipton, Dr. Joe Dispenza, Anthony William, Greg Braden, Dr. Joan Borisenko, and Dr. Kelly Turner are a few of the experts sharing their wisdom with Anita and Kelly in Heal. Talk about taking an idea and birthing a movement. We've got some big thinking and some healing to do, my friend. So let's get started. Welcome. I am so excited to meet you, Anita, because as you know, as Kelly says in Heal, it was your book, Dying to Be Me, that was the impetus for finally making this film that she had been dreaming about for years. (laughs) I know. That was quite an honor when she said that, and I'm so happy because that is the reason I share my story, is to inspire people and to get a movement going like what Kelly has done. So it makes me really happy to hear that. One of the things I think that so many of our listeners are interested in is how to get their messages out to the bigger world. And it's scary. And you both have a lot to say about that. I think the topic of being ready as it pertains to putting our work out is really important. And one of the things that I think the two of you have in common is that you were both approached by publishers. So neither of you had to write the traditional book proposal that's so intimidating for people. You each Mm -hmm. had done a lot of inner work to be ready emotionally and mentally and physically to allow these projects of yours to become a reality. So I have questions for you both in this vein. I want to start, Chell, since this is your book launch month. From the time you had the desire to make Heal, the documentary, Mm -hmm. to the time that it was airing in festivals, this was about 10 years, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So you did inner processes to get ready to get ready for both the film and the book, and I'd love to hear about those. Sure. I think the idea to do a film started back in 2007 when I was just learning to meditate and I had watched The Secret and was diving into books like The Biology of Belief by Bruce Lipton and basically learning that we are co-creators with life. We're not helpless victims. We're not victims of our genes, but that our thoughts and our perception of life, our attitudes, our emotions, all of this affected our vibration and the signals we were sending out into the universe. So the idea started back then, but then I just kept doing work to get clearer on the idea. But it was never at the forefront of my mind. Like, I was never doing the work for the film. You know, I was just doing it as a natural progression of life, you know. Well, you were following your curiosity, too. This was an area that you were so interested in. So you were just reading about it when you had time and kind of mulling it over and talking about it with your friends. You and I became friends several years ago, and you were always talking about this topic. Yes, exactly. And I'd go to Agape, and Michael Beckwith would be giving a sermon, and he'd be telling me whatever that thing that lights you up, whatever that calling is, that vision that you have in your heart, God gives you that, but he also gives you she, he, it, God. The divine gives you that with all of the means and the ways to make it happen. It's like the within every acorn is an oak tree and, and a forest of oak trees. So I think all of these serendipitous things that happened as this seed was marinating and germinating, they, it just kept strengthening my call. And at the same time, I was learning to pay attention to the things that made me light up inside to talk about, you know, my passion. Mm -hmm. And I would follow that. And I'd follow that with the confidence knowing, okay, if this is a vision in my heart, if this is a calling, the way will be shown to me to get it done. Because you don't get ignited that much in your heart. You don't have a passion without the ability to see it through to what you want it to become. And then what was it about Anita's book that just made you say, okay, this is it? So Anita's story is just, to me, it's just mind-blowing. And I can't (laughs) talk about passion. I could talk about your story, Anita, for hours and hours and hours because you really embody possibility. You are the personification of possibility. And you are just a poster child of, you know, Bruce Lipton called you his poster child of epigenetics because you had a shift in consciousness. You had a shift in the way you perceived life. and your body responded to that shift in consciousness and healed. And that is what we're designed as humans to do. That is the miraculous power that Jesus and other enlightened people were able to tap into. And when I read your story, I was just like, oh my gosh. It just kind of was the final key that made me ready to make the film. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. (laughs) Well, and Anita, if I remember from your story, you kind of knew initially You come out of this near-death experience and you heal this dramatic case of lymphoma where you're dying. You heal and then you're on fire, right? You want to shout from the rooftops. You want to tell everyone that, oh my gosh, there's this other reality, guys. We can do this. And then another part of you knew you weren't ready. And so you pulled your energy back at the same time that you were trusting that there would be a way And it would unfold, I think you said, with the same kind of ease you had experienced with the near-death experience. 
So what was that that helped you to get ready? Because that was scary for you to think about, oh, my gosh, this is a really big message, right? Yeah, I felt that there was something that was bigger than me. A lot of people think that what I'm saying is that I, me, the little me, the physical me healed myself. But it's something bigger, but it's something that we all have access to. And that's really the point. We all have access to it. It's a greater consciousness. It's an awareness of our soul. And so I realized that there was a bigger message that was bigger than me. And I realized I had to set that message free. And so this is why I put it on the Internet. But the thing is, I put it on the Internet and I set it free. But when I was out there physically talking about it in the beginning, this is right in the beginning when it had just happened, because it had happened in a medical setting, it happened to be in a hospital, doctors were curious. Doctors were questioning me and inviting me to conferences and were asking me all these questions. And one of the things I notice about our medical paradigm is that the medical paradigm, and this is going back more than 10 years, so it was even worse then than it is now, but it's still backwards even now, that it wasn't ready for what had happened to me. And what happens is when the paradigm, when the medical paradigm is not ready for you to experience a miracle, it doesn't open its mind up to accept it. Instead, it tries to take it away from you. (laughs) And so I was dealing with debunkers and skeptics and people who were claiming to be academics who were saying things like, could it be that you were misdiagnosed? And I was like, I had it for four years and I was being treated by five different doctors. How could all five have misdiagnosed me? And then when they said to me, so what do you think happened? And when I told them what happened, that literally I felt I left my body and I understood why I got cancer and I understood how it was that all the thoughts and decisions of my life up to that point led to me lying there on that hospital bed that day dying. And then I told them about the clarity on the other side and they would say things like, oh, that was just your brain. That was your mind because of the drugs. It was messing with your brain. The dying brain does that. And so I said, okay. Let's say even if I accept what you're saying, it was my dying brain, how did my body heal? And that is my point, that the old consciousness that I was, the person who was the fearful me, the people pleaser me, the doormat me, I would not have been able to embody this healing, but it took a different consciousness to embody this healing. How do you, even if you want to believe that it's the dying brain that experienced what I experienced on the other side, and it didn't really happen on the other side, you still can't explain the healing. And they said, oh, we still can't explain it yet, but we're going to still study that, and, you know, it's a spontaneous remission. And so basically, instead of encompassing what you're saying and opening up, what I find happens a lot in the medical paradigm is, as I said, they try to take your miracle away. And so I needed to stop sharing it in that way. And I started to closed down because I knew what happened to me. I knew what happened and nobody could take it away. And that's why I set it free. I put it on the internet and I thought, let this go where it needs to go. I didn't even put my full name to it. And people started writing and I was writing back and 
people were writing comments and questions. It was on a forum and it was also on a website and a blog. And so I was writing in response, but I was writing just as Anita M. So this was known as Anita M's NDE. And so as I was writing and responding to people, the body of stuff that I was writing just grew and grew on this one website, which was a near-death experience website. Yeah. They literally gave me my own section because <laughs> the story started to go viral. And actually, here's another piece that a lot of people don't know that I haven't shared publicly, is that in the interim, I was approached by another lady. This was before Wayne Dyer discovered my story. I was approached by another lady who wrote to me, and she said she was a professional editor, and she would like to work with me to write my story and make it into a manuscript, which she would then pitch to publishers. And she said, you don't have to pay me anything, but after we get a publishing deal and after you start to make royalties, you can pay me at that point. And she wanted a percentage. So I thought, oh, that sounds like a good deal. I might do that with her. So when she started working with me and started developing the story, I didn't like what she was writing. Huh. So <laughs> that happened, by the way, just as an aside. That is really, really common for anybody listening who's looking for a co-author or a ghostwriter or any kind of support editorial-wise. It's very common that you don't jive with the first one or two people. It's like a marriage. It's like dating. You don't just get married to somebody you've just met. So work with them a bit. Try a chapter together. See how it works before you get married. Okay, keep going. Yes, and that is so true. It's so important you said that. Because what happened was that the lady I was working with, she was extremely assertive. And every time I tried to assert my thoughts and my ideas or my truths, she would say, this is not how you do it. You're not a professional editor. I am. She kept saying that. And I kept thinking, I didn't say this to her, but I kept thinking, this is my story. And many of the things that she was changing were really important to me. For example, I grew up in Asia. I am Asian. I'm ethnically Indian. I grew up in Hong Kong. I was born in Singapore. My parents are Hindus. I was exposed to Buddhist culture in Hong Kong and went to a Western school and so on. So I use terms like prana and chi, and I use a lot of different terms like that. She did not like me using those terms, and she changed all my terminology, including when I spoke about the divine and all that, she changed it all to Christian terminology. And I have nothing against, <laughs> I have nothing against Christians. I have nothing against any religion. I respect all of them. But I was upset that she wasn't respecting mine because I was speaking about my own past and my own history and then speaking about what happened in the NDE. So that was number one. She was changing everything and changing my words and my terminology. And so when I first said to her, you're changing all this, but these are not words I use, and this is not what I experienced, and it wasn't religious in that sense. And so she said to me, we are writing this for an American audience, so you need to choose words that will resonate with an American audience. And I said, I'm writing it either for me or for the world. I'm not writing it for a specific audience. Have you ever heard of the name Deepak Chopra? Because he's done pretty well in America. (laughs) Exactly. 
And then the second thing that she did was she wanted to open the book with me speaking about just from the beginning of my life that I was born in Singapore and blah, blah, blah. I wanted to open it with the NDE. Of course. And you open with the yeah. drama. You open in the middle yes. of the drama. Exactly. And that's how I wanted to open it. I wanted to open it with me being rushed to the hospital in a coma, dying from end-stage yeah. cancer. And when I put that in the beginning and she scrubbed it out, she said, that's like giving the punchline away. Why would people read the book? And then I said to her, but... I'm not famous. I'm not someone people are interested in. Why would they read the book if I opened with I was born in Singapore and grew up in Hong Kong? Why would they care? And you know what's interesting about this, mm -hmm. Anita? I think this is a really good point that you're bringing up for people who are writing their stories. Like she said to you, you're not the professional, and I am. But in reality, we all are the experts of our own story. And I have this thing I always tell people. I always say, if you have the ache... You have what it takes. And I think each book has a destiny. And I think they're given to us because we can and we will carry them through to the world. We will birth them. But if we don't yes. trust ourselves in that process, we stop ourselves. I mean, I've watched Kelly. Kelly, you were an actress. And you had produced a couple of things. But you were a Hollywood girl. And then you decide you want to write this very research-based, scientific Spiritual, and that's brutal. When you put science and spirituality together, talk about intimidating. And yeah. so you have this vision that you want to do that, and you had to trust yourself. You got experts to give you advice, but at the end of the day, it was about trusting yourself, right? Totally, and that's what I'm hearing from Anita even before, and I can relate in such a big way about the people-pleasing and the trying to do everything right and being motivated by fear and making everybody love you. I'm listening to her process unfold, and it's like these academic intellectuals are putting pressure on her and telling her she's crazy or that it, what she thought yes. happened didn't really happen. Right. And she was so convicted because that experience she had was so real that she finally had the confidence to say no. And the same thing with this editor that came into her life. It was reflecting back to her this opportunity for her to say, no, this is my story. So she finally had this confidence, and I felt like the same exact process kind of unfolded. I doubted myself. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a researcher. I'm not a doctor. And that voice would pop up like, who are you to deliver this information to the world? Which is why I relied heavily on other people's stories like Anita, inspiring stories, as well as the wisdom of these experts. But for me, I was just always guided by the fact that this was truth to me. And I think, and the feedback I've gotten is, that I presented it in a way that wasn't preaching, like you must believe this or this sure. is the absolute truth, but this is the truth for me. This resonates for me and it works for me in my life and it's changed my life. Things like meditation and using examples like Anita's story. There's truth to this. There's proof, even though some academic can't explain it or the research is affected by quantum physics and the expectation of the observer, things that a lot of us can't explain. It resonates so deeply. It's my truth, and that's what I'm going to express and deliver to the world. And it's a vulnerable place to be because it opens yes. your criticism. But through the process, I've gotten so much confidence. And when you put yourself out there, even with just recently, first the film and now the book, I'm like, oh, gosh, now it's in print and people can criticize me. I have those <laughs> thoughts come up. And I'm like, you know what? My intentions were good. I did my best. And... 
I did it with love and with passion, and you just gonna have to let it go. And it's damn beautiful. And for anybody who yeah. isn't a big reader, the audiobook is just exquisite. In fact, <laughs> Larry, my fiance, he loves you, Kel. You're one of his favorite people in the world. And as a rule, I can't get him to listen to books on tape very easily. But we were driving back from Arizona, and I said, hey, babe, can I pop this in? Because I've read the book several times, but I wanted to hear it. He loved it, Kel. He loved it. He just said, wow, she's so lovable and intelligent, and yet you're an every woman. So we can all relate to you because you're not intimidating. You don't have five degrees in front of your name. You talk to us at our level. So it's conversational, but it's also incredibly smart. So Aww. you've done a great job. Thanks, yeah. Larry and Linda. Thank you. Thanks, Larry. I want to say, Kel, you define in the book health as a state of ease. And I was really stunned to learn that half of the United States is suffering from a chronic illness. Half. So talk about tapping into a market. On the one hand, I could see why that would be intimidating, like, holy mother of God, I'm (laughs) speaking to a market that is hundreds of millions of people. But at the same time, I think that's what makes it so genius, too, because look at how many people need this book. Yeah, it's mind-blowing really how sick we are and how hypnotized into thinking that's just the new normal. It's just like people are sick. I rarely meet someone who's well. People are always complaining about pain. When you look at the commercials on TV, if it, like when we watch golf over the weekends, every other commercial on golf is either a financial commercial or a drug-related commercial. It's mind-blowing. And What's even more mind-blowing to me is the fact that they say, oh, this medication will clear up your skin disorder, but, but it may cause lymphoma or death. I'm like, right. how is that okay? Are people crazy? Like, I'll deal with my rash. But just to speak to the chronic illness, we highlight Kelly Turner's research, who is a legit research. She's really, really protective that her research is very science and evidence-based, and it's all about radical remission. So 1,500 That's right. Yes. So these nine key essentials to healing, which all of these people who had spontaneous healings from late to end stage cancer had, and they're so amazing and profound, and they're specific to her cancer research, but I am 100% sure that they apply to all chronic illnesses. Yeah. I'm going to read them. I'm going to read them right now, unless you have the book there and you can read them. Go ahead, but I can add if you don't have Okay, it's on page 36 for anyone who has the book. Radically changing your diet is number one, which is my favorite one. Number two, taking control of your health. Three, following your intuition. Four, using herbs and supplements. Five, releasing suppressed emotions. Six, increasing positive emotions. Seven, embracing social support. Eight, deepening your spiritual connection. And nine, this is so good, having strong reasons for living. And the mic is dropped. Right? And I love you say in the movie and in the book, there's only two of the nine that are physically related. The others are mental and spiritual and emotional. But I have to say that first one, radically changing your diet, that is big. It may be only one of two physical, but that alone can change so much. So much. Yeah. I love how the book outlines the different things physically that are bombarding us. And then all the different emotional ways in which we can start to heal. And Ania, this brings up for me a question, which is you said that after your near-death experience, 
you realize that every single decision you had made before that point came from fear. That's yes. a major statement. And I think it's really common and sad. Can you speak to that a bit? Yes, and it is really common and sad. And even Kelly mentioned it, that because we are so fearful of disappointing people and we're so afraid of shame, and a lot of it is probably conditioning from our childhood, that I realized that all the decisions I made, including even, I used to eat pretty healthy before, but I ate healthy because I was afraid of getting cancer, not because I loved myself. Yeah, and that's what's changed. I still eat healthy now, but I eat healthy because I love my life and I want to live long and I love myself and I want to take care of this body. But it's a very different reason. I used to eat healthy before because I feared cancer and I wanted to do everything I could to prevent it. And so I also want people to know that eat healthy but do it because you love yourself, not because you fear illness. Isn't that um, a great redirect? God, that's <laughs> just to add to that real quick, because so many people, and I see it around me, they eat out of fear while they're eating something, especially if it's unhealthy or sweet or they're indulging in something. They're consuming that food with fear that they're going to gain weight or they go to the gym for fear that if they don't, they're going to, and it's such a subtle shift. But if you go to the gym just to feel good because you know it's healthy for you, rather than fearing if you don't go, you're going to get fat. You know, so many people are so focused on their weight, it affects the food you eat. It. Anita's story explains it so beautifully. Just enjoy the ice cream. Let go yes. of the food and do it because you enjoy this experience of pleasure on your tongue and the way it tastes and the experience that you're with a loved one eating your ice cream. So many people attach fear to food because of weight, and it's heartbreaking. And it's such a subtle shift. It is. Yeah, it's very subtle, and yeah, it's so true. And I I think that people don't realize that our own state of being, our own energy, actually affects our body all the time. So it affects how you receive the food. And so if you're eating an ice cream, you're better off enjoying it than fearing the ice cream because, yeah, you're adding, you're, you're kind of adding to the problem if you fear it and eat it. Oh, that's so true. As Kelly knows, I have a big sweet tooth and I love bread, but I do eat predominantly no gluten, no sugar. I'm obsessed with fruits and vegetables and I have been my whole life. But man, when I have ice cream, I will have a double and I have no guilt about that thing. No guilt. Mm-hmm. Me too. I love chocolate. I eat predominantly really healthy, but I have a sweet tooth and I do have to have chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're here to experience pleasure too. That's part of the human experience. So it's like you get that 75%, 80% foundation of really clean, good, nutritious food, but then enjoy yourself 20% of the time. Indulge. Enjoy life, you know? Mm. What Kelly said was really important predominantly you're eating healthy food and then your body is able to handle your indulgences. But when our normal diet, the culture's diet is really, really poor, then they can't even handle the indulgences because the diet is poor to begin with. Oh, that's a great point. Anita, years ago, I wrote a book with my son called Generation Green and we had a chapter on the green home and part of that was about indoor air pollution. The pollution inside your cozy walls is often worse than the pollution outside, even by sometimes 10 times the amount with 
inhaling different toxins from mold and bacteria and dust and tobacco smoke and vapors from cooking and heating and paints and building materials and carpet and yada yada. So that was a long setup to ask you, when you got healthy, did you change and worry at all about detoxing your home? Because that can be a whole quagmire of fear all into itself. It can, but it's funny that when I got well after the NDE, my focus shifted and I view the world really, really differently. And so this is maybe going off on a little bit of a tangent, but I'm going to touch on it it anyway because, yeah. So I realized that our soul, which is made purely of energy, and we are predominantly souls more than we are physical bodies. We act like we are physical beings. But our physical self is only like the tip of an iceberg. Our real self is our soul. It's our energy being. And that part of us is so much bigger than our physical self. And that was one of the biggest things that I came away from the near-death experience realizing is that when you believe that you are just this physical being, you think this is all you are. And so you bend yourself out of shape like a pretzel to try and fit in and to please other people. But when I crossed over, I realized I was not a physical being. I was, we all are, a huge spiritual being that is expressing itself through the physical at this point in time. But this spiritual being, this soul, has always lived and always will. It is powerful, huge. It has a purpose. And once I got in touch with that, it was like, wow. This is so much bigger than anything I could ever imagine. And so my message was that I wish everybody knew that about themselves because when they know that and when they are living from that place, you become guided. But when you think you're a little physical being and you think, I have to run around physically worrying about this and that and changing this and changing that, we put all this burden on the shoulder of this little physical body that is scared of this and scared of that and running around and trying to change the world and doing this and that. And this little physical body starts to get worn down because this little physical person is afraid that if I don't do this, this will happen to me. But when you live from the soul, you have a very different perspective on life. And so I now know that my soul, because our souls are all connected, our consciousness, I interchange these words, Our soul is our pure consciousness, and our consciousness, all of us, when we are outside of our physical body, our consciousness is all connected. So in other words, my consciousness and your consciousness and Kelly's and everybody, it's all connected. And it's like we are all expressions of God, but each of us has this soul. I have a whole analogy that I use, but as we express in this physical body, as long as we continue to get in touch with our soul, we stay guided. And we can call it a soul, we can call it pure essence. And that's what I have been doing. And so I don't worry about the EMF fields and all so much for me. But of course, I don't do it out of fear is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. I do choose a clean place to live. I choose a place with clean water. But it's more like I'm guided as to where I need to go and what areas or what locations feed my energy. And it's almost like if you think of it this way, that when you do things 
that are nourishing for your soul when you're following your purpose and you are living your purpose and you are doing things that are from the place of your soul, it's almost like your body feels more energized. But when you do things out of fear and you're trying to fit in and you're trying to people please and you are being driven only by fear in your choices and you're taking a job you hate just to pay the bills because you don't trust that your soul has a higher purpose and that there's another bigger job, a bigger calling waiting for you. When you do things like that, what it does is it shrinks your energy. And for me, the way I view the world, that shrinks my energy and is more unhealthy than being exposed to EMFs and things like that. But when my, thank you, and when my energy is expanded, I'm also more guided to be in the right place at the right time for synchronicities to take place. Mm. And I think you're more resistant. Your immune system's stronger, but also those yes. things don't enter your field because your energy is so strong. So you're less affected by these pathogens, toxins, and invisible yes. waves out there. You got it. Yes, I like you that. got it. A hundred percent. Yes, Kel, that's exactly Kel, what are, right. Kel, you talk about in the book that there's so many of us that are on this chronic stress marathon and that it's really essential that we find ways to manage that stress and to rest and to repair. What are the top ways that you rest and repair? Ooh, daily meditation, earthing, which we've talked about before, <laughs> I love uh, or connecting with nature in any way, shape, or form. Earthing, Just, we should explain what that is. Okay. Just tell them so, quickly what earthing is because that sounds bizarro. So earthing is going out and taking off your shoes and connecting the soles of your feet to the grass or the sand or the dirt, anything that is directly in contact with the earth. And by doing that, you tap into the negative ions that the earth is giving off, and nature is very healing. So when you connect with nature in that way, when you're putting your bare feet onto the earth, it lowers inflammation, it lowers blood pressure, it removes free radicals. And it feels good instantly. I mean, humanity was always connected to the earth. Even the Native Americans, they were walking with moccasins. And before that, it was bare feet. And people slept on the ground. And now we're all in these homes with these shoes on. And we're just not (laughs) connecting. I think it's one of the reasons why people feel so good at the beach. Because they're actually walking in the water. They're walking on the sand, on the mother. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So keep going. So that's one of your ways. The meditation earthing. I also, today is a perfect example. I haven't been able to run, or I've chosen not to run, I guess, for 14 months. And I'm an athlete. I'm a runner. I have part of one way that I de-stress sometimes is to burn it off. And different people have different ways. Some people choose to do yoga. And depending on where my head is at and how much energy I want to burn, running has always been very therapeutic to me. So today I ran for the first time since I've been pregnant and had a child and it felt so good and when you run it really works the lungs and your lungs process grief among other things but I find that movement whether it's yoga running snowboarding whatever it is that you enjoy doing really gets your lymph system going removes toxins through sweat gets your lungs pumping and it moves stuck and stagnant energy and emotions and it physically for me just feels like I'm burning stress out of my mind and my tissues So that's another way. How about you, Anita? What do you do to de-stress? So I have several things I do. I love to listen to music, especially 
conscious music. I love music. It just moves me. I love going to the beach. I love being by the water and listening to the waves and getting my feet wet in the ocean. That's another one of my favorite ways to just de-stress and connect with Mother Earth. Then I love walking in nature. So I don't run, but I love walking, hiking, walking, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. All right, I want to switch gears a bit. So paying the rent. We have a lot of people on this call. They have a calling. They have something they are aching to write or create, paint. And they want to bring it forth in the world. And they're working a day job. So what did you guys do for money back in the day before your creative projects were touching the masses? Well, it's very shocking, I know. But as I was pursuing an acting career, I was a waitress. Only one in history that's ever done that. Um, so, but it's funny, as I started, I always worked about the minimum because I would get very burnt out. I love the service industry. I love people. But if I did it too much, it would really drain my energy. And I was conscious of that. And as I was learning about energy and our attitude and our emotions and how it would manifest things, like I would use work because it was just, like you said, a day job to make money. I would use it as kind of a, laboratory and experiment to like, okay, I have a six, seven hour shift. I'm going to go in and I just really set intentions and change my attitude. And then it really flourished my income. But then it's funny. I started doing gratitude work oh, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to say this because this practice has stuck with me since, but yeah. I watched the movie, The Secret. And a lot of people have mixed opinions about that film, but it was the first time I had ever learned about quantum physics and law of attraction and thoughts become things and all that stuff. So I would write in my journal, I'm so happy and grateful. I think Bob Proctor talked about it in the film. Yep. I'm so happy and grateful that I have a job that pays me six figures and I can afford this, this, and this every week and I can afford to stay in five-star hotels and whatever it was that I wanted. And cocktail waitressing was certainly not going to get me there. So <laughs> I was just grateful for the quality of life that I wanted, but I didn't name a specific job. It's so interesting because it took three months, exactly three months, and all of a sudden, because I did a little modeling and a little acting, and my modeling agent sent me to this fit model job mm. at Guest Clothing, and I didn't even know fit modeling was a thing. Yeah. And I book the job, and now I'm working like a few days a week, maybe four or five hours a day, and all of a sudden I'm making like over six figures a year for a part-time job. <laughs> and I was like, and it was something, it was a position I didn't even know existed. Wow. And it was mind-blowing because it just really works when you're focusing on the qualities and being grateful and exercising that muscle. And we so often, I know, sorry, I'm going on a tangent. We so often no, focus on the fear and what we don't want. But oh, when you oh. do this gratitude work and giving thanks for things that you want as if you already had them, it feels silly at first, but just like any spiritual practice, you're exercising that muscle of focusing on what you do want instead of what you don't want. And okay, Kelly, I just had a memory. If you'll remember when my son came out of film school, he didn't have any work. And so I don't know if you know this part of the story, but he sat down and he started doing gratitude work. And so he was writing in a journal. Actually, I think he did it online. He was writing in a Word doc. I'm so happy and grateful that I'm making great money working with my film. He did this every night, but not for very long, Kelly. I would say it was only like two weeks. And then you and I were talking, and your husband needed some film stuff done, and he started working for you guys, doing some film work for you guys. 
Yeah. He made outrageous money. He had never made so much money. He had so much fun. He said it was the most fun he had ever had working in his entire 25 years of life. And then that led to what he's doing now, which is he helped start a company and they're going gangbusters and he's just so creatively fulfilled and financially incredibly fulfilled. And all of that started with gratitude work that he did every night obsessively. He spent like an hour and a half a night. He was obsessed. And he did graphics with each Word doc. And in fact, he showed it to me. It was beautiful. And he did like a 100 gratitudes a night. And then he started working with your husband. And that's what I would suggest. If, you're, if you have to work a day job, you know, like these kind of miracle things happen. But you've got to exercise that gratitude muscle. You've got to. Wow. And you've got to have faith and you've got to focus on what you do want instead of yeah. what you don't want. Yeah. Well, and you too are such yeah. a great example of that. Anita, I also listen to your books on tape as well, Anita, because oh. I'm an auditory girl. And so I read along with the book. I need to see it and hear it. And your voice is so incredibly comforting. <laughs> and if I didn't know so much of this industry, you know, I've been reading and writing and editing self-help my whole life, I would think Maybe on first blush or just hearing about your story, I would think, well, that's one of those phantasmal stories that almost never happens. But the way you speak about it feels so universal and it feels so like I can see myself in your story and I can touch it and I can practice what you do and I can use your way of thinking as a model for my own life. And suddenly it becomes second nature as I'm listening to you to think like you. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's a beautiful thing to say. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I'm very touched by that. And Hay House were really amazing because when Wayne Dyer discovered my story, they wanted me to be authentic. They didn't do what that editor did. They wanted me to use the words that were from my childhood and they wanted it to be a global story. And so it was like a completely different experience working with my publishers than it was with the editor who had first approached me. Well, can so. we talk about your story for a minute? I would like, for listeners who haven't heard this part of your story, it is so incredibly magical because you had had this, I've got to tell everybody this story moment, and then you pulled your energy back, and then you had a speaking gig in Dubai. And you yes. said it was while you were on stage, you were looking out into the audience, you could see people identifying with your story. You could see them shifting. You could feel the power of it. And you decided that day, okay, I'm ready. Yes. And you told the universe basically, okay, I'm ready. This story needs to go out in the world. You just show me what to do. And boom, Hay House contacted you with an email the next day and said, we want to publish your story. Essentially, that's what yes. happened, right? That is exactly what happened. I got an email in my mailbox. And so exactly what you said. And up until that point, you were talking about how were we paying the bills or making money. Yeah. So I was a part-time consultant with for corporate on culture I was talking about. I was just speaking to their employees of different culture, helping them to integrate. So it was just a part-time job. But the thing is that I was spending my time writing on my blog, but again, under this name of just Anita M. It wasn't even my whole name. I didn't want people to know. So people who I was doing the consulting work with had no idea that (laughs) I had cancer, I'd almost died, that I had an NDE. No, I was the official Anita that would go for a couple of hours into, it would be 
different corporations at different weeks, they would hire me to come in and speak to their employees of different cultures. So to them, I was Anita Mujani, the intercultural consultant. That's what I was. And they had no idea of this other life I was living online. And more and more people were kind of following me online. But I was just going for this consultation work just to make some money so I could help pay the bills because Danny had lost his job when I was really, really sick from the cancer because he stayed home to help take care of me. Oh, God. Yes. And so then he was starting fresh with a new business and I was doing this consulting work. But what I was finding is I was grateful that it was part-time because my heart was in the work in just writing and I had never been a writer before, but I was just writing online and connecting with people who had questions for me for my story. And I didn't realize this, but as I was connecting with people online and answering their questions, my book was kind of writing itself. And I didn't even think about it, but I was just doing it because it was like a passion to talk about this. But I didn't dare get out there and speak publicly as myself anymore because I was dealing with people who were like the medical people and so on. But here in this private forum, it was like a safe arena. And then one day, my friend who has this healing center in Dubai, she invited me to come and speak there. And at first I was resistant. And she said, no, 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 all the people here, they're really open and they love stories like this. And they're open to alternative healing. But a story like yours will really inspire them. I would love for you to come and share your story. So she flew me there. And as I was sharing my story and I was watching their reaction, something changed in me. I realized, oh my gosh, it was the first time. And I swear, this was literally the first time that I was physically and energetically feeling and seeing the impact that my story was having on people. I had no idea because I just thought this is something that happened to me and I was just helping people online. But it was the first time that I felt this shift in me. People were crying and they said, oh my God, I have stage four and you've just given me hope. And now I know I can heal myself and there is hope for me because I felt that the medical world had taken my hope away. And there was just stuff that just really moved me. And that was when I thought, oh my God, this is my purpose. It is to share my story. It is to come out and say, yes, this is me. This is my story and not hide behind the internet. So when I went to bed that night, I was just thinking, I have no idea how this is going to happen. I'm going to leave it to the universe. I'm going to leave it to my soul to figure it out. But in my head, yeah, but in my head, I was still thinking, kind of small. I was thinking maybe my friend whose healing center this is, maybe she'll invite me back again. Maybe I'm supposed to come here more often. That's how I was thinking. And the next morning, it happened to be my birthday, I woke up, checked my emails, and in my emails, there was this email from Hay House saying, Wayne Dyer has discovered your story and has asked us to reach out to you and to see if you're interested in writing a book, which we would be happy to publish. Ah. And he would like to write the forward. Now, I started crying when I saw that. I actually wrote back and I said, is this for real? And I said, it's my birthday today. And 
She wrote back within minutes and she said, this is real. This is really Hay House and Wayne Dyer has read your story online. But here's where it gets even better. So after that, Wayne and I connected and Hay House were brilliant. They told me, just be authentic, just be yourself and the editor will clean it up for you, but we want you to maintain your authenticity. I told them some of my fears because from my last editor, and they said, no, you use whatever words you want, and all we'll do is we will define it. Like if you use the word prana, we'll put the definition that this means life force energy. And they said people love to learn about other cultures. So anyway, one day I was just talking with Wayne, and he said to me, do you know how hard you are to track down? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, do you know that from the time I read your story to the time that Hay House tracked you down? Because I told them to track you down. And he said, from the time I read it to the time they tracked you down, it took five months. <gasps> I said, really? Five months? He said, yeah, we didn't have a lot to go on. It said Anita M's NDE. And in the story, you say you're in Hong Kong. That's all we had to go on. And they had to figure out how to track you down. But here's the interesting thing. And I said to him, but do you know that the day they found me was the day I was ready to share my story publicly? Oh, my God. And that is, yeah, that's what I want people to know. You know what's so interesting (laughs) about that? Right now I'm halfway through a book proposal course that I'm teaching people. And last week the topic was, PR and marketing. And I talked about that at the very open, just about how intimidated most people are about PR and marketing and about putting themselves out there because most people are really pretty modest. There are very few of us who really want to say, hey, look at me, look at me. (laughs) Most people are pretty damn healthy and they're shy and they're modest and they know from a spiritual standpoint, we're all the center of the universe. But most of us don't go out in the world thinking, hey, I'm more special than you, so pay attention to me. And so there's a lot of things people have to unpack to be comfortable about putting themselves out in the marketplace. There's an emotional process that people need to go through. So we were going through that process last week, and then I read that part of your story this week, and I thought, oh, my gosh, this is the perfect example of what we were talking about last week about that. What is it that you have to do to get ready? Some people have to go to therapy. Some people have to do forgiveness work. Some people have to just, it's as simple as getting a haircut so you feel photogenic. Whatever it is, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, there are things that all of us can do so that we're more in a position of ease to take our story out to the people who need it. Yes, it's exactly that. It's about becoming ready ourselves. And that's what I kind of call the inside out view because. We think we have to go out there and hammer at the marketing and hammer at other people. (laughs) But no, it's inside. Get yourself ready and it'll come. Oh, I love that. And Kelly, you've been a really good model for me about that as well because Kelly's shy. Kelly, you're not a look at me, look at me person. Even though you were a model, even though you're an actress, you're actually really super modest. And you've been a great model for me about somebody who, okay, you're not 100% confident all the time standing up and talking, and guess what? You go do it anyway. And you don't always want to have the camera on you, and you go do it anyway. In fact, I don't know if you remember this, Kel, but I was the one who said to you on the first screening of your movie, where are you? Put yourself more in this movie. I want to see (laughs) way more Kelly. And you were like, oh, my God, I'm not sure I can do it. I was like, yeah, 
You can because we want to see you. But that was not your initial feeling. No, I did. I actually, when we first hired our editor, we were still filming the movie, but we were editing as we were going along. And I was like, I think, I don't know, guys. I feel like you should just edit me out. I know. And, <laughs> like, and they're like, uh, no. no. And I'm like, are you sure? I, you know, cause I was worried that people would perceive that, okay, here's this actress who didn't get to where she wanted in her career. So she's inserting herself and making her own film to put herself out in the world. Like, I didn't want that to be the judgment. So I was like, so it's better if I'm just not in it so people can't criticize me that way. Yeah. Uh, I watched your evolution of that. And I'm so glad you got more and more comfortable with trusting people who said to you, because it wasn't just me. I'm sure a lot of people said to you, no, Cal, we need to. Okay. So I always say this to people who are scared to write a book because they don't feel like they're the expert. I said, okay, there are experts who write books and those are great. They've got the PhD, the master's, whatever. We need experts. And Then there are the people who have the expertise of life experience, and they say to us, hey, I'm just figuring this out too, so take my hand, and we're going to do this together. I'm not a guru. I'm not going to be the expert who's going to tell you how to live your life, but let's like take this journey together, and those people are just as worthy to be the narrators of the story as the ones with the PhDs. They're all necessary. I totally agree. Yeah, totally. All right. I want to talk about coaxing momentum. So when I look back on my career, I see that turbulence, whether it's exterior resistance or interior resistance, turbulence comes and goes. But momentum is more constant than it often appears. I will look back and see how often momentum has been carrying me inevitably toward my dreams, even when everything looks like a crash and burn. So I'd like to talk with you both about what it is that you do today to encourage momentum in your creative lives. Hell, I know that you're working on some creative projects right now. You've just birthed a film. You birthed a baby. (laughs) Now you've birthed a book. But that's not the end. You're birthing other projects. So what do you do on a daily basis to keep the momentum going? Oh, my goodness. This is a big question because it's a dance. It's a fine line between... (laughs) kind of letting things flow and unfold, but still kind of take action every day to be productive. And I think it kind of unfolded and the film, there was an energy behind it. It was almost like, okay, this calling is very obvious. Once I read Anita's book, Dying to Be Me, I was like, wow, okay, I'm ready to do this thing, but I have no idea how. There was a momentum behind it. There was an energy. There was a flow. So I just said, much like Anita did, okay, I'm ready. And Hay House email showed up. Like, I just said, God, show me what to do. Show me what's next. And things just kind of unfolded. So I pay attention to how I feel. Like we talked about before, your body is kind of like a tuning fork. And if something is energizing you, like if you're aligned with your passion, if you're coming from your soul, your bigger, higher self, soul, it will give you energy so that you can work and take the next step. If something feels draining or forced, then I back up and go, why is this? Is this because I haven't been taking care of myself and I'm exhausted? Or is it because this just isn't really aligned? It's forceful. Just sit back, go play with your baby, go meditate, whatever it is, and just allow it to unfold at its proper time. So it's just, I really tune into how it feels. Again, it just, the feeling like really indicates if you're on the right path or if you're forcing, because sometimes 
you don't have the energy because of stress or different things, you know, life happens. And so the more awareness you can cultivate every day, the more you have tools to deal with life, you can assess in every moment, okay, this is how I'm feeling. Am I feeling exhausted and drained because I need to take a time out and meditate and get inspired again because I've let too much stress accumulate? Or am I feeling exhausted and drained because maybe this PR firm isn't the right one for me or maybe this mm. producer or maybe this ghostwriter is not resonating, it's not aligned. That's a great point. It's paying attention to your energy and taking care of yourself and then following that energy and keeping moving forward. Even if you're scared, keep moving it forward. Oh, that's a good answer. Danny Shapiro gave the advice last month, just touch your project every day. Just touch it every day, even if it's just the tiniest little thing. And I try to do that because I have so many different things I'm interested in and so many different things I love to do and commitments. But I think for me, when I first wake up, I think, okay, if all I have is 15 minutes to put into that chapter, I'm just going to give it 15 minutes. And then I just feel so good because I just gave it something, just a little bit of love. And then it kind of makes me relaxed. Whereas if I don't touch it, then I kind of feel there's an urgency, like a pang in in the pit of my stomach going, hey, hey, what about me? Are you going to pay attention to me? Mm -hmm. It's almost like that little kid. That when you're on the phone, the kid starts yelling for attention and throwing Cheerios at your head. That's what happens to me with my book. If I don't give it attention, it's throwing Cheerios at my head. How about you, Anita? What do you do to stay with mom? Um, So, in fact, what I do, interestingly, is very similar to what Kelly says, and Kelly said it so beautifully. I actually also check in with myself and how I'm feeling. And so I know that if something is just not feeling good, I'll check in again the next day and the next day. And if it doesn't feel good continuously, then it means it's not for me. And then I'll have to figure out a way to let it go. I realize, okay, this project, whatever it is, I'm not aligned with it. It's draining me. And so I'll have to kind of reevaluate it and figure out a different way of doing it. And at the same time, here's what I've discovered. The old me was really afraid of saying no. What I've discovered is that when I'm unafraid of saying no, and sometimes what we do is something that we think is a really great opportunity, but it doesn't feel right to us, but we still say yes, even though it doesn't feel right, because we think, oh, I don't want to miss this opportunity. But I've realized that if I have the courage to say no, because in my heart it does feel draining, the timing is not right, if I have the courage to say no, even if it's looks like a great opportunity. What happens is that I find that other things that are more suitable or better for me come along. I've actually found that when you are saying yes from the perspective of, again, fear, fear that a better opportunity won't come along and you think, oh, I better take this. And when you're saying yes to that, you actually become drained and overwhelmed. And again, your energy gets decreased And then when your own energy is decreased, you're kind of aligning yourself up again with projects that are of that energy level. So what I do is check in with myself. But also, there are certain things when I have to, when I've committed to things and I have a deadline, I will kind of look at it and maybe even spend five minutes a day until I come through the hump and then finish it. Um, so I've just finished writing my third book. Yay, oh. I feel so good. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. What's it called? Can you- Thank you. Yes, the title I've given it is 
sensitive is the new strong. <laughs> oh, I love, love it. it. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I'm still waiting to see if the publishers accept the title. They've already accepted the book, but wow. they might tweak the title. So yeah. this is great. So I'm you can so call relieved, it. You but can I, call it Calling All Canaries. And then the subtitle, <laughs> Sensitive is the New Strong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. And I started writing this book about a year and a half ago. And I just submitted it last week. Literally, it was finished, oh you know, after rounds of editing and everything. But I started writing it a year and a half ago. Six months in, it felt like a weight, an yep. anchor around <laughs> my neck. It felt like a dead weight. I, yep. The publishers were waiting for it and the deadline was looming. And it was just a nightmare, and I had wished I had not signed this agreement. What happened is I spoke to my literary agent. I told her the issues, and what we discovered was that many of the issues I was having, my editor was supposed to be resolving those issues. And so we discovered in that conversation that my editor was not a good match for me. So my agent, my literary agent, she actually helped me out. She told me she recommended an editor who she thought would be a much better match for me. And so we had to go through the process of telling my current editor that we had to part ways. But when I worked with the second editor, it became a breeze. It was like the weight was just lifted off my Yeah. And so it made such a huge difference. But the thing is, at that time, what helped me was talking to somebody about what I was going through. Yeah. And yeah. I was ready to pack it in and tell her, is there some way I can pull out of this deal? I just can't do oh. it right now. Well, and you were yeah. allowing your agent, and there's that word, allow, which I know is one of your favorite words, Anita, but you were allowing your agent to earn her 15%. Because so often <laughs> yeah. we don't want to bother our agents. We don't want to be the high-maintenance client that yes. gets in the way. So we stagger through a job that we can barely handle or that we can barely tolerate and we stress ourselves out. That happened to me once. I was doing a ghostwriting gig years ago and I really found the author that I was working with, we were having some really troubling communication about the payment structure. So it was not predicated on the fact of his payments. So my payments were independent of his payments. So the publisher was late in paying him his advance. So it was looking like the book was going to be completely delivered before he even got his advance. But I had to pay my mortgage and I needed my payment. So I was dealing with him and yet he didn't want to deal with me on that. So he kept putting me through to his agent. I was getting nowhere. So I finally had my agent deal with it and it was a great help and we got it resolved. But it was like my agent had to be the bad cop because I don't want to be the bad guy when I'm ready. That's what they're there book. for. That's, that's what we're yes. paying them our 15% for because that's a <laughs> lot of money, no doubt. So yeah, anyway, that's a great is. example. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I very rarely hear of somebody switching editors midstream, but it can be done. And it's great to know that that's an option. Yeah. And now what we've put together with this new editor, I just love the book. I love what we put together. So, yeah, and I think it's really important what you just said, speaking to your agent. And you're absolutely right because, again, the old me would have felt, I don't want to be that high-maintenance client. I want to be (laughs) the old me. (laughs) Right, and let me just kill myself while I be a people pleaser. (laughs) Exactly. But you know what we do, though, when we do that, when we don't allow ourselves to bring other people in, like our agent and so on, 
we're also not giving them an opportunity to show us what they can do because my agent actually said to me that she has this editor waiting in the wings who loves my work and would give her right arm to work for me. My agent was so happy that I was looking for another editor. So in fact, it turned out, it worked out so well. And I was thinking, oh, thank God I shared with her because had I not, this wouldn't have happened. Oh, that's a great point. Kelp, you were approached by your publisher. You didn't go shopping. They came to you. Can you tell us your experience? Sure. I'll keep it really brief. So the film, The Heal Documentary, was released um, December of 2017. In January of 2018, the publisher who was releasing our DVD is this company called Beyond Words, and they said, wow, the success of the film is very much reminding us of The Secret, which I thought was so funny because... They had also done, right? They had also done The Secret, DVD, and then book. And, of course, The Secret kind of lit the fire within me to do this film a couple of years later. Full circle. So, full circle. And so we talked about doing a book and we got the deal done or whatever negotiated. I didn't use an agent. I still don't have an agent. <laughs> but I really had grown very close to the publisher and lovely people, and I trusted them implicitly. So I just spoke to some advisors, et cetera. So they said, okay, we can do this with Simon & Schuster because we have a deal with them through Atria Books, or we can do this just with us, which the advantage is we get more of the cut, but we don't have as much pull in the world, but we still have all the relationships. It just isn't going to be as a big release as maybe Simon & Schuster would do it. So I said, well, this is my first book. It was only a month or two into the success of the film. So I was like, I'd rather just not have the pressure of some big behemoth company, corporation overseeing my process and stressing me (laughs) out. So I just decided to work hand in hand with this small, really kind publisher. Yeah. So I hired an editor as well to walk me through the process. She and I were aligned and she did all the things that I didn't want to do. You know, all the content and creativity was mine, but she helped me structure and she helped guide me and she was there for emotional support. And so long story short, as we were unfolding and the film came out on Netflix earlier this year, Beyond Words called me and they said, well, based on the conversations we're having with all of these different countries and yeah, 14 like, languages already. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I think we're up to 18 now. Oh, my um, God. He said, I think we should really consider bringing Simon & Schuster on at this point. And so this was near the end before I turned in the final, final manuscript. Yeah. And I was like, okay, you know, again, I trust you. If you're getting that much great feedback and you fear that we can't handle this initial print, then let's go big. And I thought that was just such a perfect process for me because I was really gently held by my editor and my publisher as I wrote the book. It became pregnant and had to put it off because I was nauseous for two months. So I just felt very nurtured along the process. And then when it came time to release or get closer to printing and all of those decisions, we did it through Simon & Schuster. So I feel just it was kind of that divine unfolding of the process exactly how I needed it to be. Wow. And again, that's an example of the different stages of allowing. It takes time and people need to be really gentle with themselves about how quick or slow their process is. And it's so funny, as you're talking, Kel, the book I was talking about earlier, Generation Green, that I wrote with my son, it's Simon & Schuster as well. And they're an amazing publisher. And even though they're a behemoth, 
what people don't really understand until they get involved with a behemoth is they have imprints. And so like with mine, it was Simon Pulse, and that's the children's and teen division of Simon & Schuster. So they all have their imprints, and those imprints are made up with book-obsessed people, just like us. People go into book publishing because stories changed their childhood, and they fell in love with it. Nobody's going into publishing to get rich. No editor is like, woohoo, I'm balling, I'm going to make a million a year. That's That's not how it goes. They go into book publishing as 24-year-old kids out of college making 40 grand a year, and they're lucky if they ever get to 100. So they're book lovers. And so any of you who are afraid of those behemoths, just remember, it's just heart-centered people who love books. You just, you'll get to know them, and and beautiful. By the way, my book, Sensitive is the New Strong, is also with Simon & Schuster, with Atria. (laughs) Yeah, so all three of us. (laughs) No Wow. Full (laughs) circle. I love it. We're just going to yeah. have to tag them on this <laughs> post. Well, you two, I am so grateful that you have both taken the time and energy to gather your courage and your confidence in the way that you've shared your stories with the world because I know my life is better because of both of your work and millions of lives are better. So I thank you on behalf of my listeners and myself. Thank oh, you so much. Thank you so much. This was a delight. Thank you. Mm. Okay, love, love, love. Love, love, love to both of you. Yes, love, love. Happy birthday, Cal. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Kelly and Anita for sharing your oh so healing vibes with us. You can find Heal, the book, everywhere books are sold, and Heal, the documentary on Netflix and on HealDocumentary.com. Anita and her programs and workshops and books can be found at AnitaMorjani.com. If you found value in today's show, I would so love you to share your enthusiasm via five stars or a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. And if you would like help sharing your own healing messages with a global audience, I would love to help you like I've done for hundreds of authors. If you go to beautifulwriterspodcast.com, you'll find links to my online book proposal magic course, my big beautiful book plan co-authored with the amazing Danielle Laporte, and lots of videos and book deal news from my Carmel Writing Retreat clients. We hang out at the stunning La Playa Hotel in Carmel. A quick word, if you've been eyeing the retreats for some time, I'm making a lot more space these days for my own books and have gone down from 60 retreat spots a year to 30. And that number may soon continue to reduce. Because of that, and the fact that the cost of putting on my retreats has nearly doubled in the past year, I will be raising my rates following the February 2020 retreat. So if you've been interested, head over to bookmoma.com slash retreats or beautifulwriterspodcast.com to get all the info and we'll hop on the phone or computer and see if it's right for you. Thank you so much, you beautiful writer, my beautiful listeners. Until next time, write on.